0: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. When I heard Brandon Webb was a best-selling romance author, I couldn't believe it. I said, you have to come on the podcast. You're not only ex-military, ex-Navy SEAL. You're head of the Navy SEAL sniper school. Now you're a romance novelist? And and then he told me, and guess what? I just sold my thriller novel for half a million dollars and it's gonna be made into a movie. And then he described the process of what had happened and how data-driven it was. Anyway, you'll hear it from him, but then we also talked about what's happening in the world. Could there be a civil war? We talked about how to write a thriller novel, all sorts of stuff. We talked about the business issues during this pandemic, all the opportunities. He's supposed to send me the paper about how to identify the right Amazon category to write a thriller novel in. I'll describe that in a future podcast. Here's the interview. I've got Brandon Webb on, longtime guest, ex-Navy SEAL, author of a bunch of New York Times bestselling books. But... I first wanted to talk to Brandon about a special project he's involved in involving military romance novels. (laughs) Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me again. And then I want to talk about the impending civil war in the United States, but we'll save that for later. Uh, uh, So I remember you told me like a few years ago how you were searching for a category where there was demand, but there wasn't a lot of, supply and you figured out algorithmically somehow that it was that military romance was this category. You got a deal to do these military romance novels. You had a ghostwriter write them. And now you're telling me you got even a brand new deal in this category. Just, yeah. This is all correct, right?
1: Yeah, correct. It, with the exception, it was, um, a, an MBA project that I did. And so it was data driven, not algorithm driven, uh, decision. Um, But, but yeah, essentially, I figured out that it was an underserved category and a category that historically did well uh, up or down economy and was just in demand all the time. So, um, and what was interesting is after I got the report back, I it kind of made sense to me because I was getting approached on social media by all these woman romance writers who were trying to kind of break into this category of of military romance but they just didn't have the technical background but they were you know i was being nice initially um which i believe in but then it turned into abuse right it was like the three questions turned into a hundred page a hundred question word document and i was like sorry lady I'm, i'm not i'm not your consultant
0: it's because they they knew these romance novelists knew there was uh Demand, but they just didn't know anything about the military
1: yeah they couldn't they didn't understand how because everyone wants especially if it was popular they were trying to write these books these sexy romance books about the navy seals but they had no idea like what's it take to be a seal the training how how things are structured and all this stuff and so i went to uh, i had a relationship with st martin's press which is Macmillan publishing and i said look i did this report i'm very knowledgeable in the military i'm not really keen to to write steamy you know romance novels but can we get a a writer to pair with me and we'll we'll write um you know some really authentic books and i said i don't want to be on the cover i don't want any credit at all um the first book i got a creative director credit on the back which i was fine with but um and they said yes so i did a um I did a multi-book deal with them. Uh, the first one was called The Military Wife.
0: Okay, hold on. I'm going to look it up. Hold on. The Military yeah. Wife? <laughs> yeah. That's like, that's like the perfect title also. <laughs> it's yeah, like yeah. you know it's going to be a romance, and you know it's going to have to do with the military. Um, yeah. yeah, here's The Military Wife, book one of two by Laura Trentham. Yeah. 179 yeah. reviews, which is really good. And it looks, it looks great. So let me just see the, the, uh, subject. So a young widow embraces a second chance at life when she reconnects with those who understand the sacrifices made by American soldiers. Boom.
1: Yeah. And we did the whole series, like heart of a hero series. Is kind of how I, I branded it also.
0: Did, was it initially planned that you would do a series?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was the plan. It was to it and, was to kind of do a do a series. Um and you know, the book's done well. I mean, these things, you know, they just sell and sell and sell. It's it's one of the it's it doesn't kind of it, it has a long shelf life, I guess is what I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah, so this book came out in twenty in February of twenty nineteen. Let me look up my classic book, Choose Yourself. <laughs> this is mine I'm only 4.4 4 out of 5. This is a higher rated book than my book. So congratulations <laughs> on writing such a high Thanks. quality book. Uh how many books did you write with Laura? So so first of all, what was what did the deal look like? Did you split things 50/50 with her? No. Uh, you know what? It's I'll just be
1: candid for your listeners. So Laura is writing under a pen name. The issue that we ended up having was she wasn't aware of the structure of the deal. She thought I was actually a consultant on the project, and she was being paid as a staff, kind of like you know, a one-time writer. What they do um, because we had a bit of creative difference on the second book. We've done two books together, and she's a great writer, um, but we had you know like some creative conflict on the book, and and then she found out that I was kind of the the, what do they call that? And, and, um, the wizard of Oz, I was the guy behind the curtain Uh, (laughs) Um, and I owned everything. She got really triggered by that. And, and so I don't like, it's almost
0: as if you were like a movie producer and you were producing this book.
1: Yeah. And I said, look, you know, that's, it is what it is. Um, but she's a great, she's a great writer, but, but as you and I know there's lots of great writers out there. Um, it's just about execution
0: well, and, so did she write book two? Yeah, she did write book two. Um,
1: did a great job.
0: And then, and then, so I mean, can you like? So, okay, so there's so many questions. So I'll start off with, because, uh, and I'm going to ask the financial ones. I'm I'm also going to ask the formulaic ones, like what's the form for a romance? And then we're going to talk about your current deal uh, and maybe other stuff you've done in this area. But what was what was the data? What were you looking for? I mean, obviously you're already an expert on military and romance is a, a a popular category in general. Was, was that what influenced you or was there anything more data driven than that?
1: I mean, it was, it was all of the data that I looked at was that the sales, there was just, like you said, it was a simple supply and demand equation. It was the, the demand was massive and the supply was, was low. And so I just said, that makes sense. And ironically, my own mother named me after a trashy romance novel um, called The Flower and the Flame. She actually mailed it to me in New York. Um, I got it in my bookshelf. I was some steamy pirate captain that forced himself on this, you know, settler's daughter and had some ro- romance, <laughs> <laughs> some settler in, uh, coming to America from from the UK. And, and so... What
0: do you mean your mother you named you? Like what...
1: Yeah. She, I was either going to be D'Artagnan because she loved the three musketeers uh-huh. or, or this, or Brandon because she read this trashy book and was like in love with this pirate captain character. Um, so I was named after a, a romance novel. And, and oh, so I, just oh, I see it. when
0: you were born.
1: Yeah. Ah, yeah. That's funny. It's <laughs> like, so, yeah. Um, yeah. So she gave me the, you know, the name for the book. Um, but that it was that simple. And, and, like the book, um, you know, I got a, I, I got a mid six uh, figure deal. Um, and and I think, you know, we're starting to earn out the, the royalties. Um, but as you know, typically you need to do multiple books in the category before you start seeing any meaningful, meaningful royalties for for a genre. Uh, Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, okay. So, So what convinced you though that this cat, like, was it something where it was like the top books were very highly ranked on Amazon? Like what category specifically, like what was just your process of saying, um, Hey, this is a category I I should get into. Like if I'm, if I'm listening to this and I want to write a genre fiction, how should I go about finding the right category for me?
1: So, so interestingly enough, I had read an interview with um who's the author of it was the author of the firm yeah john grisham his name. yeah grisham and and i believe it was grisham that said he wanted he was looking at you know what is he right about and he, and he ended up um figuring out that actually law which he had experience with was a was a good category so i i think because literally anybody that wants to write can self-publish these days. It's like content in general is is just all over the place. But there's not, you know, the, usually the cream rises to the top, so the good content breaks out typically. Um, but it's just so noisy. So I looked at this as okay, um, this is a category, and specifically the research paper that the MBAs gave me uh, when I said to look at. I said, what is the op- What is an opportunity? In fiction, like what is the underserved niche? And it came; it was clearly romance, but as a subcategory, military romance. And I said, "Well, that makes sense because all these women have been asking me about, you know, help asking me to help them describe the military environment so they could write write better romance for their characters." Um, and, and I just said, "You know what? I, I'm a big believer, and I like to execute, and I like to experiment, and." And I said, you know what, this will either do, um, it'll probably do well. Maybe it'll do really, really well. But how do they, how do they determine military romance? Um, well, specifically, um, you know, as a plot, like as a main plot line, it it has to deal with the military environment. So it, it, if you look on Amazon, you can find out there's tons of guys with no shirts on the covers of these books. And they're, they've got like the bullets, you know, around the, around their chest and stuff like that. Um and so it's it's truly you know in a military setting um with a romantic plot line
0: but but was there any like data like you know something they saw in the Amazon sales rankings like how did they yeah. know that there was yeah, no, how was, did they know there was, was low supply but high demand um
1: because they looked at the basically all the public numbers they could get so it was it was directly related to sales and that over like a 20 year period the sales were we're always, you know, we're always pretty steady regardless of recession. In fact, I think it was, it was, um, uh, during a recession, the sales went up. Um, so it, it was basically the data that I was looking at was all related to sales data, Amazon, Walmart target.
0: Like if I wanted to find a category that, you know, fits my background, for instance, uh, you know, and, and, you know, on the genre side, what, what data should I look at? Like, how can I. Uh, I mean, what I asked them to
1: do was look at the, the entire vertical. And I think there's enough public information on, on book sales and book rankings that are out there, especially with Amazon. Um, and they just put it into, you know, they gathered the data and, but I, I would, I would say to anybody, um, just, you know, look at the entire market and, and see, you know, you once you see what the market is on fiction, you can chop it up, right? It's science fiction, fantasy, romance, um, you know, historical fiction, like James Michener, one of my one of my favorites, uh, who wrote uh, Hawaii, Afghanistan, a bunch of other ones. But um, then you see, okay, this category is 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 crowded or not crowded, and there's a demand for it or not, not much demand. Um, but it's, it's not that hard to, I, I just, the reason I got the MBA class to do it is because I, I, it was time consuming and I just wanted, he- I wanted help. Uh, but it's not that hard to, to look at the, the vertical and see, okay, where, where are the opportunities here? And, and trust me, I was hoping it would be, because I love science fiction. Um, I was hoping it would be, I would be writing about you know, Navy SEALs in space you know, doing missions on Mars. Yeah, in space, <laughs> um, it just wasn't the case. So, um,
0: so like, like for instance, um, you know, this this falls into the category of of war fiction. I'm just trying to understand what they looked at. Um,
1: I'll I'll actually see if I can dig up the report and I'll send it to you. Okay, yeah. That'd I'd be, be happy to share it with you.
0: Yeah, that'd be great. And then I could... Um,
1: I don't even mind if you share it with the if with your audience. I have no issue with that.
0: Yeah, that'd be great. Let them see it. Yeah. Because, yeah, I see, like, you know, um, there's war fiction. This is also in the category of women's friendship fiction uh, and so on. I'm just curious how they saw that there was a lack of supply. So, because clearly there's, like, a lot of demand. But maybe they saw that there wasn't any recent books or... I'm just curious, like how that, what data specifically they were looking at.
1: I think they look at, uh, you know, because I recently did a, a a video game project, and it was related to to kind of doing a market analysis of of the military games, first person shooter games, and I was biased thinking, wow, the Call of Duty, Fortnite, all these kind of massive, massively played games are are, uh, it must be a super crowded space. But when you compared the military first person shooter games, the, the number of titles in the market compared to the users, um, it was, and then you take that and you compare it to, uh, like a, a Sims game and there are tons of Sims games. And, and so, um, one of my, I'm in this two-year Harvard business school program and, and, one of my classmates, Christina, owns Maximum Games in San Francisco, and and she did the study, and she's like, Wow, I'm surprised too. There's just not a lot of the category for first-person shooters is, is not crowded at all. There's plenty of room, plenty of market share. So the so it's more a case of the market's very big, but it's being served only by a few, a few authors in that case, and in the video game uh, sense, only a few publishers. When when you look at the other categories, market's very big, but there's just tons of different video game publishers kind of going into that market, Hunt the hunting video games, the sim video games, all these other, the, the fantasy stuff. Um, and so that that's kind of what it was. It was market size is big. There's only a few authors serving this very big market. So there's plenty of room for new people to come into the space. Um, and so that's, that's how I arrived at the decision. The other interesting thing is I, I I did a passion project fiction. I had, I had an idea for a book based on the fact when I was a, before I was a Navy SEAL, I was a search and rescue swimmer in helicopters on the Abraham Lincoln, which is a a nuclear aircraft carrier. I didn't know that. The Navy had just said, Hey, we're putting women on ships and combat roles. So we went on the six-month deployment to the Middle East, you know, stopping in uh, Hawaii, Hong Kong, Thailand, and then we go to the Middle East, and we kind of come back and hit all those spots in Australia. But we have women on the ship now, and we're trying to figure things out. Well, we had a sexual predator on the ship, and he assaulted, I think, six, seven women, and they never caught him. Like, the entire six-month deployment.
0: So even though there's a limited population, like, you knew... It had to be one of these thousand men. Um, Couldn't they do DNA or anything like that?
1: The thing is they're not equipped. It's a
0: warship Uh
1: and they're not equipped. They're equipped to kind of deal with guys, men and women coming back drunk and disorderly or breaking the rules, but they have no detailed criminal investigative um, system. It's just not set up for that. And so I thought, Imagine if it was like a Hannibal Lecter type character on an aircraft carrier that's using the fact that it's a 5,000 plus crew, it's a a warship kind of city, and people, like in any city, people die, they commit suicide, they fall off the ship, they get blown over the side because they're not paying attention on the flight deck. And, And using that, this chaotic kind of military warship and everything that goes on, plus a bad leader a bad captain um who's having a lot of mishaps like using that to his advantage and so i wrote this book based on that that sexual predator and all my experiences and 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 my point is like i put my heart and soul in this thing and it was very well received like i worked i got i got the book halfway written and i i asked john mann and i write together uh quite a bit and i asked john i said hey do you want to help me finish this because it's taken me so many years and so him and i collaborated we got the book finished uh, in the pandemic we went to auction and we got we got half a million for it and oh then my it looks God. Like congratulations we're gonna, thanks and so where and, and it looks like we're going to get the movie sold because we're they're bidding on that now my point is when you write when you deliver good product good content if, if it is excellent stuff I feel like it's going to do well regardless of the competition right because you've just delivered superior product which I think we we delivered something really special and very unique on top of that then I'll shut up is I had no idea I was writing this because I have a couple friends in Hollywood to make sure it was going to be an easy movie to make but I had no idea it was going to be also, a pandemic friendly movie you know, when i we were talking to Michael Bay and a few others, they were like, "Hey, this is a very pandemic friendly movie to make." Um, and I was like, "Well, great, that's good for me. Well, why is it
0: pandemic friendly? <laughs> so,
1: it's a set that you could control. There's yeah. not five thousand extras jammed into one room, so it's it's a cat and mouse on an aircraft carrier going through these ships, you know passageways and um, so it's it's very easy to just have a couple few characters and separate them and and b- build a custom set. Um, I was talking to to John Davis, um, who I really like and respect. He he did um, Courage Under Fire and Behind Enemy Lines, and he said we he's like military may not may not like this, but because there's flawed characters in the book, there's and and unfortunately the military doesn't like to be portrayed uh, in in real time um and i didn't want to make a raw, raw military movie i wanted to make a complex kind of thriller um, closed door murder mystery uh but but john was like hey this this military may not like it but we can go use the intrepid in new york or uh the midway in san diego and, and get an aircraft carrier regardless and use fx and and you know build a set and this will be a very easy one for us to do
0: so this novel though this is uh this one you wrote uh, so with with your partner uh john uh this one you wrote from beginning to end the romance novels from beginning to end laura wrote correct so uh, there's a a wide variety of things i'm curious about first off uh with the romance novel and and by the way it's it's very interesting you brought up john grisham because at the time there might have only been a handful of legal thrillers when he wrote the firm. I mean, I think there was, what was that Harrison Ford movie? Was it presumed innocent? Uh, I think so. That might've been like really the only thing out there at the time when the firm came out, like legal thrillers was a new category and Grisham was a great writer. I, I've recently, um, started and stopped reading two different thrillers and it's very easy to write a bad genre book and, and and at the same time, it's deceptively deceptively um hard to write a good uh thriller book. Like I read like a Brad Thor book, for instance, um, or or a good John Grisham book. And they're they're just great at like cliffhangers at the end of every chapter. You get right into the story right away. Uh I just I and I'm not I, I am not a snob about thrillers. I I read I read a lot of literary fiction, but I also read a ton of genre fiction. And I appreciate a good page turning thriller or science fiction or whatever. And and they're very, it's a very different style than literary fiction. Uh, uh, but I always appreciate the page turning, the cliffhanger like style, the short chapters, the get to the heart of the story right away. And the bad ones just suck. Like they're just <laughs> awful. And I'm, I'm yeah. I I just tried reading, I, I won't say the names of the authors, but I just tried reading two thrillers in a row, two different authors and they were horrible. I just could not, yeah. as soon as I put them down, I completely forgot what I had read and it, I decided it wasn't worth it. I was going to stop, but, so, um,
1: w- I totally am with you there. Cause I, I read a lot also, you know, and, and look, the market will, we'll see how it'll do, but I do know that the team that bought it at Random House was the team behind Game of Thrones books mm-hmm. and they were like this is incredible. It's it's not only like a, you guys did a really good job but this is this is something that's very unique and no one has done before and and I like that. I like
0: So what will the category be? Like it,
1: it's you know what? It, it's funny cuz John and I were asking them when this was when we were at auction we're like how do you what category do you see this and it really is a blend of kind of crime Fiction and military fiction. So, like the like, Tom Clancy, you know, uh, has a baby with with a uh, you know crime fiction author. <laughs> what
0: what what do you think is the difference between mystery and thriller, if there is one? You know what? I honestly don't know. I won't. I won't bullshit you. Um, maybe there is one. Yeah, yeah. Maybe there
1: isn't a distinction. <laughs>
0: um. So, but okay, and then and then on romance, I'll ask a similar question. Uh, which you may or may not know the answer. But what is a romance novel? Like obviously two people fall in love and problems, they solve the problems, but is there any what's what's uh, what's the formula of a romance novel? I mean, to me,
1: the formula is, you know, it's like any it has to be a complete narrative, right? You have to have some type of conflict. Um, and then the resolution is and there's a lot of sex on the way to this resolution. Uh, of course uh, the steamy sex scenes are our are, are key ingredients but then the the resolution de ma is you know they they the the woman gets her man type of thing um and and maybe it you know there's a little bit of of cliffhanger at the end but event you have to you have to create some re- resolution i mean you know I can always tell somebody that doesn't know what they're doing writing because it's an incomplete narrative, right? You're just like, either this doesn't make sense because they didn't explain enough background or there's no conflict or there's just no end. It's just it, you know the book ends and you're like, what the hell just happened to me? Well, like <laughs> there's like no resolution
0: what what what's a potential what keeps the lover? I've never read a romance novel, actually. So what keeps the lovers apart usually, right? What's an example?
1: Um, um in this case, Uh, in the military wife you have a guy that um a wife that loses her husband in combat so she's a widow the best friend is like consoling her and then they develop a romantic interest you know uh, ultimately um so you know there's usually and, and the conflict is how do you have a how do you be the grieving widow, and then you, you feel guilty because you're having these feelings towards your hus your your dead husband's best friend, you know, and it's just all sorts of, you know, stuff, and and that stuff real happens for real, you know, I've I've been there.
0: Is that big enough um, to um to to be a conflict? I, I you know there's
1: there's other conflict you can you can introduce as well, um, but yeah, I mean you're you're talking, you know, uh, having to Get the body back and have a funeral and family and you know you have the in-laws, um, the ex-in-laws like wanting to spend time with the grandkids. Okay, who's this this new guy? The, the best friend is conflicted, right? Because he's like, oh, how do how do I fall in love with my my dead friend's uh, wife? You know, I th- I think in that case definitely enough conflict going on there uh, to create a ton of tension uh, and stress. And then of course, you know. I, you yeah, know, you gotta have the the steamy sex scenes.
0: And then and then how, how does a conflict like that get resolved? Like other than just, they just say, throw up their hands and say, yeah, we might as well just do this. <laughs> well,
1: um, I don't want to ruin it for the reader that wants to go read Military Wife, but you know, it, it's, you know, it's just two characters kind of working through things like we do in real life. It, it's not always clean and, and neat, it's messy, you know? And it's like, okay, um, you know, maybe it's moving out of, out of the town, starting a new life somewhere else. Um, you know, the guy getting out of the military. So he kind of leaves that behind, um, that kind of thing. But, but that's, that's the fun of, of writing fiction for me is in, in my formula was I read, I read, um, Stephen King's on writing. Cause I would never, aside from a couple articles, in uh when i got out of the military in 2006 i wrote a few articles for like fhm around fictional sniper missions and um it was fun stuff but very short you know 1500 2000 words um, and it was based on uh, just like the book i finished on r- real events but still fiction is very tough or yeah it's very tough compared to nonfiction for me anyway um, non-fiction i outline it i know my you know, my background, my conflict, my my kind of rising action, um, the resolution, Dana Ma is all, all there before I even start. Uh, when I started writing the 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 book, is called Steel Fear. Um, it, at least that'll be the title, unless the random house changes it. I, I roughly knew the shape of it in my head, but I just started writing. And then stuff just happens and comes to life, because it's like one idea leads to another one. Um, but it's very different writing than than nonfiction, for sure. That's all, I mean I have a ton of respect for people that write in fiction because it it is it's a lot of work.
0: Yeah, I mean when when you were writing this, well, you you had John Mann help you, but were you very um, did it feel different than writing nonfiction? Because it was close to nonfiction. It paralleled experiences in your life.
1: Yeah, but I, I had no idea how it was going to end. Um, I wanted to create uh, complex characters. Um, I wanted to create flawed characters. Like our our main kind of hero is very flawed, and he's a suspect. Uh, you know, in the book, I mean, you, I don't want to ruin it, for, ruin it for the readers. But, but I created this environment. Where you're like, I don't know who the hell, who the hell
0: did it? What was the challenge for you? What did What did you learn about fiction writing this one with John? Well, so I had I had written
1: about I got a pretty good way along. And then I brought John into the process and John read what I sent him. And he's like, okay, this is great. I love the characters. I think we need to, we need some more work to kind of, um, you know, build some more complex backstory. Uh, But, you know, so we started collaborating, but when I, when I was working alone I would get up in New York at 5.00 AM and I would just commit to write for an hour every morning have my cup of of coffee. and sometimes I I got you know five thousand words. Sometimes it was five hundred, um, but I just did it every day. And sometimes I was just like, "Wow, this is really," it you I don't know. It must be something that unlocks in your brain where the create creativity starts happening and stuff starts coming to life. And you're just like, "Oh, I'm I'm seeing all sorts of things." And um, it, it is a very scary book. My my mom wouldn't read it. It's it, she she started on one of the paragraphs because the, the killer uses succulent, which is a paralytic that anesthesiologists use, but by itself, it completely paralyzes the victim, but they can feel pain. Mm. Um, they're con, you know, they're conscious and they can feel pain. They just can't move. They're frozen. And one of the scenes this guy uses it, sticks his victim in the neck and proceeds to peel off the face mm. uh, while, while the victim's alive. So <laughs> it's just twisted shit.
0: And well, but, uh, did, did you start it off like with, a A crime in progress like whether the predator and doing his thing
1: it was yeah it, it was that and it was somebody on the run and the one thing i i don't know whether i i learned this and i can't remember if it was a ted talk or um something else but i i was doing research uh, when I was wanted to get into fiction and it was like, you've got to hook them right away. If you don't, and this is a, even in the movies, if you're not hooked right away and you don't have that kind of emotional investment, you got to get them invested in this book immediately or else you're just like, I mean, we, we've all read those books where you're like 50 pages in. And you're like, man, this sucks. It's like what, when the hell is something going to happen here? Um, and so, you know, in my Personal opinion: We had to have a really strong hook. The one thing that our editor at Random House already mentioned, and my agent Alyssa, she's like, "We got to keep the pace up. You got to, you got to just make this thing a page turner." Um, and so we necked it down from one hundred and fifty thousand words to mm-hmm. ninety thousand. And our new editor is like, "Hey, I, I think we can even speed it up more." And she's already had some really good input on, you know, creating more doubt um up front with a few characters um but but speeding up the pace
0: how do so you speed up the pace what's the technique for that
1: i mean look i'm a i'm a rookie right but which what my agent and my editor and both said is we've got to get to things you're getting to things quicker like you know the dialogue is good but don't like, what can we remove and take out of place to kind of get to the next scene? Right. So, don't let the scenes drag on. Um, just like in a movie, it's like you can have these intense moments or scenes in a book, but okay, and then on to the next one.
0: It always makes me think of like TV shows. You always see people just hang up the phone. <laughs> and never say yeah. goodbye. Like no one ever says, okay, <laughs> see you later. All right, goodbye. Like that is never happens on TV. Cause it's like, just, you have to cut out like every extra word.
1: And I love the cliffhanger too. Like you can cliffhanger a, a a chapter and f- and make it kind of foreshadowing and then transition into a totally different environment. But when you get, you know, maybe two chapters later you pick it up again where that cliffhanger and, it, and the reader's like, oh, thank God now. Now I'm getting into this part. I can figure out what the hell is going to happen. Um, so, it, you know, it, it's one of the things John and I talked about actually was how do we want to analyze this book and say, because we're already working on book number two, but how do we, what's the formula? Like, because I'm like, I don't want, I, I like structure. I like checklists from the military as a pilot. I just want to check the box. Okay. Do we have like these three or four, like really detailed, iconic scenes in the book that are going to burn into the reader's head. Cause I, you know, we used to study memory, memory drills and, and we used to teach like how to, how to kind of biohack short-term uh, memory, whether it's, um, you know, remembering complex numbers like license plates, but l- linking, I don't know if you heard of linking before, but linking is a way to do that. And you, you imagine these, the reason you remember stuff is either it's very traumatic and it just, has a, a uh, impact on your memory, or you, you know, create these images in, in your head to remember someone's name, like um, Kamal, for instance, our mutual friend. I, I if I was meeting him for the first time, I maybe I put this stuffed camel on his head, and now Kamal camel. But you're never gonna next time I see Kamal, I see the camel on his head, the fluffy stuffed camel, and I'm like, oh, Kamal, you know. And that's, but the point is, you want to create a scene that's so memorable and, and and vivid and visceral that and and we have those in this book but John and I were talking about okay how many is enough is it 2 is it 3 what's the minimum so we're we're kind of like dissecting this to make the next book make sure that it has all the components to be a to be a really good book cuz i don't know if anyone's done that i I've, I've watched on um, a ton of uh, authors whether it's masterclass or ted talk um but everyone seems to kind of have their own way but but as you know as well there's there's got to be a formula if you follow this formula at least you're going to you're going to make sure that you're not going to miss anything or leave any, leave anything out
0: well there's like the basic arc of the hero right so yeah. you have some reluctant hero who gets a call to action maybe he rejects it at first but then kind of the old wise man <laughs> says no you got to You got to do this and some inciting incident happens that puts him on the adventure and the problems get bigger and bigger and he meets more and more friends to help him along the way and the enemies get bigger and bigger and maybe there's a resolution in the middle and you and that seems big but it keeps on going there's a bigger one and then finally he returns home to tell the story yeah that's kind of like the classic arc of the year that's that's jesus with that
1: yeah and that part is that's a whole nother conversation (laughs) but that that to your point it's true like that kind of hero's journey has been figured out but how many friends on the journey how many enemies how many challenges how many how many obstacles do you throw in the way like how big do you and complex do you build it to make it super interesting or maybe if you overdo it you lose people right it's just like too much for for somebody to kind of dive into um you know, even like Lord of the Rings, I'm a huge fan of Lord of the Rings, but, you know, there aren't, there was, you know, on that first book, The Hobbit, there was only a handful of heroes on that journey, right? There was, and then you have a handful of kind of bad guys. So it's not, the world is magical and, and complex, but the the characters aren't, you know, they're, they're not massive in number.
0: It, it always makes me, so I, I think of, three genre novels, but in different genres. So I think of Interview with the Vampire by Anne Rice. I don't know if you ever read that. Um, yeah. So there was, there's one scene in there where, and, and by the way, I haven't picked up or touched this novel since mm, 1992, maybe. And I, and I never saw the movie. I remember specifically the main vampire, uh, I think his name's Lewis. He's the original vampire in there. And he thinks he's the only vampire in the world if I remember correctly, but then at one point he's walking and, you know, he has super hearing from being a vampire. He's walking and he stops and he hears other footsteps like half a mile away walking and stopping. And then he walks again and hears the footsteps start again a half mile away. And then he stops and then those footsteps stop. And then suddenly you realize there's another vampire who's aware of him. Who's right near him. You didn't know there were any other vampires in the world. And that's the end of the chapter. So that's like, For me, like that was like a brilliant cliffhanger. And then I think of another one um, written by a guy, David Levine, who's um, he's a a co-writer on, on billions. And he um, he's written a bunch of murder, not mysteries and, or, or other types of mysteries, detective novels. And just the very first chapter, little boy is riding his bike car bumps right into the bike, knocks the kid off, takes the kid, puts him in the back of the car boom, is gone. And that's, You, you starts it off. You, so the worst possible image for a parent happens oh, in yeah. chapter one. And then, um, the third, but that's that
1: hook too, right? The, yeah. You get hooked right away. You're bought into that book.
0: Yeah. And then I guess with the firm, uh, which is very different from John Grisham's actual first book, which was a time to kill, which became his second published book because the or a time to kill wasn't, wasn't picked up by any major publisher, so he had to self-publish it or whatever. But the firm, which was his second book, but his first major book, uh, it basically starts off where this lawyer, who's you know has all the good intentions in the world, is kind of um, you know uh, seduced by the riches of a big fancy law firm, and then you realize, you know, and and we it becomes relatable, and rather than rather than a thrilling but it's it's so relatable like we all have good intentions but oh maybe if i just take the huge salary for a few years it'll all be good and then you you get sucked in that way so it was like three different ways of kind of you know s- sucking me into different different stories and uh uh but you're right i i you know and then literary fiction i think has its own pleasures like just the the wordplay and the language and the 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 psychological depth uh w- without having thriller-like aspects and, and cliffhangers. Yeah. So I, I love a good written, raw novel.
1: I'll send it to you if you want to read it. It's I yeah. it'll be in PDF, but I love, uh, I love your love opinion
0: it. on it. I'd love to read yeah. it. And okay. um, uh, uh, yeah, so, cause I've been thinking, I always, you know, about four years ago or five years ago, I gave myself the goal. This is the year I'm going to write my thriller novel. But then I got obsessed with doing stand up comedy and that that <laughs> took over. That became like thirty hours a week because that was that was hard to do stand up comedy. Yeah. was like, it, it was like the hardest skill I ever had to kind of develop in. And uh, uh, but I'm thinking this year now, I might try again that that thriller novel. I haven't decided yet. I feel the compulsion to do it. Like I love the I love do it reading those. And I've written twenty five books. So I just haven't written a, a thriller novel. I mean, I
1: think now is a good time, right? The content good content is in demand for sure. I've had enough talks with publishers and and producers and directors in Hollywood to know that good content is really in high demand. Interestingly enough, you know, now that even the producers and Hollywood directors are thinking, okay, they're warming up to like, okay, let's not do a movie on Netflix, but let's do a limited series because that, you know... I think they've got the formula. They understand that some movies are meant to be global blockbuster movie theater type events, but now, okay, how's the future going to look a year or two from now? It's I, I don't I don't see people packing into the movie theaters anymore. So, um, but it, I think it's a great time to, to to write a book. As much as the whole publishing industry as a whole is a is another topic. I. I one of the reasons I'm happy we went with Penguin is because they're fairly vertically integrated as a publisher. They have, I believe, they own their book, their book printer. Um, they're they're kind of when you're vertically integrated like they are, they can really control the supply chain. Um, and like many other publishers are are in a pretty tight spot these days. I I feel like uh, the pandemic has made people read more to so digital. Uh, ebooks, audiobooks, physical books, but they're not buying them in the bookstores. Um, but the industry is due for further disruption. I guess is my point.
0: Do you think people are reading? Like, uh, and the reason I ask is, I just notice in general, like on articles, uh, just across the board. Like, I was talking to some some big writers of of articles, like big bloggers, and they were all telling me across the board. Their page views are down, but podcast listens are up like more people will listen many many a huge multiple will listen to this as a multiple of the average readers of a, the average book.
1: Yeah I think it depends you know I, you know and it's just my guess. I, I feel like I, I still run a, a media digital media publishing company. All of our page views and unique visits are way up.
0: Oh, it's interesting.
1: We're up 40% on the year. Uh, subscribe, paid subscribers are up um, as well. But we have, you know, the, behind the paywall, we have video and digital print, essentially, and, and some ebooks and all that stuff is, is up. Uh, but I, I feel like people are generally audiobooks are. people kind of seem like they discovered audio. Wow, this is a great thing to listen to in the car, the commute, podcasts as well. But I, I think like content is just in in high demand. It's, it's being consumed in different ways. But people are they have more time uh, on their hands for sure. I believe with the pandemic.
0: I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in airbnbs like in about a month i'm going to coco beach which is right next to cape canaveral i'm going to watch some rocket launches i'm going to of course be staying in a very nice airbnb on the beach and it's just such a great experience like the whole world is available to us now because of airbnb but whenever i'm at an airbnb i always realize you know i the home that i left to come to this airbnb I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So, if you have a home but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there and it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But- it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that I ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for fourteen hours, and they they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I I at first class. So I didn't want to fly for fourteen hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like, if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long. And both the programmers he was interviewing Took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com/slash James. Just try it and see. You'll you'll find out. So, ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast and the most interesting jobs will pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Here, here's another question. So like after World War II or after Vietnam, a lot of the, the initial wave of books were about World War II or vietnam so for instance after world war ii you had that was really the creation of you know writers like norman mailer or you know james jones with from here to eternity uh you know even kurt Vonnegut, joseph heller you know joseph heller with catch 22 kurt Vonnegut with slaughterhouse five
1: book
0: yeah and uh uh and then vietnam you have a lot of vietnam books but i'm like tim o'brien's been on the podcast with the things they carried it's such a beautiful book and uh you know, I wonder if post pandemic, you kind of need to first have a wave of pandemic related books. I I don't know. But on the flip side too, is I feel like I'm sick of the pandemic.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. Me too. I I mean, I, I feel like we're, we are going to see those types of books, you know, like there's, you know, it's, it's the zombie stuff has always been big, right. It was big before the pandemic, but now it's like, you know, the pandemic, it, and maybe it's the civil war that erupts and fractures America who the hell knows. But yeah, I'm probably going to see that kind of stuff for sure.
0: And so you're going to write a sequel to this uh, military thriller.
1: Yeah. We have our main character uh, who's kind of finishes the book as a hero, but has, has some major issues unresolved. And we're kind of trying to uh, resolve some of that in book two Um, we've got a great kind of like hero, um, like seal we're, I'll, I'll, we'll share this. We've got it set up as a, um, seal versus seal scene in there. So I feel like that's, that's fascinating to me because, you know, the seal community is a great community, but you know, the, by nature of 20 years of warfare, burning these guys out over traumatizing them, um, it's done some real damage psychologically, uh, and you know the result of that is you know you can just see you spill out into the press right they got a lot of guys have done really bad stuff and they're getting some of them are addicted to sub you know like substance abuse issues um, stuff like that so i, I feel like that'll be an interesting one to kind of tackle and show yeah you, know, you have this kind of villain where people maybe feel sorry for him like man i don't blame this guy for kind of going off the rails because look at all he's been through and then he just got spit out of this meat grinder of combat with, you know, very little support from the the government and the VA. And he's just kind of out in the civilian world and just kind of falling in with, you know, organized crime, stuff like that. So that'll be, that'll be very cool. And I have tons of material to work with on that. (laughs) Um, But I feel like it will open people's eyes up to kind of some of the issues that, that are, have been going on in, in the, in the military community.
0: And and what were the what, what were the economics of okay you you are about to sign you know officially close this book deal and then the movie guys got in right away did your agent approach them and I ended up switching to WME. Oh, um, who's your agent there? Um, Hillary Zaitz. Okay, yeah, um, I'm I'm with WME as well for writing. Yeah. So I,
1: actually, I stayed with Paradigm for literary, but film and TV, I went for. Uh, I switched to WME because I'm really happy with my agent, Alyssa. She's, she's, she's amazing. Uh, And Hillary right away, it was just a night and day um, from what I was getting for film and television. Uh, And she's just been a rock star. So she, she's got this in the hands of some very big people um, and got us a, a bidding process. So, and her point was, wow, this is very unique and unusual and it's pandemic friendly to make us, you know, limited series or movie out of this. So, and people are dying for, for that kind of content.
0: And if it gets bought, what's the odds that it gets made?
1: I'm not going to do it unless it gets made. So that's, that's been our strategy from the get-go. We're not just optioning this off because I've been down that road. I sold uh, the rights, the TV rights for the red circle Mm. um, to Nina at CBS. She bought it the same day. Mark Harmon was my partner on that project when she left CBS, they scrapped all of her projects and Harmon actually got the rights to the book back. Uh, we got to keep the advance and then they, that Navy SEALs series on CBS is what I pitched and they made it anyway, <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> which kind of sucks, but that's show business sometimes.
0: You know, I've, uh, I've unfortunately. had, unfortunately I've had stuff like that happen. Like I, I have, I think it was about seven or eight times. I should write this up. It's about seven or eight times. I've gotten so close. I've been in. I've been inside every TV network. Everybody interested in everything. I've gotten so close. I've I've been with networks where it's like going to get done, and then someone gets fired, and boom, that's it. Or then I see yeah. this show with the exact same title show up on a sister network, you know, owned by the same parent yeah. company, and. Yeah it's just so, uh, I don't, I don't want to say it's frustrating. I, I always kind of blow that off, but, uh, you know, psychologically, I don't, I'm even more flattered that stuff gets done, but, um, uh, you know, I would be lying if I said it would, didn't piss me off, you know, but I'm over it. I mean, I,
1: some things you just got to take on the chin, right? I, I don't want to be known as a litigious IP holder in Hollywood. and, And I have a friend who's an entertainment lawyer and they, they do due diligence on that stuff, and, and a lot of people don't realize. So I'm like, ah, I got plenty more where that came from. In this
0: case, yeah, that's how I always feel.
1: Yeah. And so, but I, and you, you try and learn on, and for the next one. And so for this one, it's we're structuring this deal, you know, to get enough money to where they're obviously making a serious financial commitment, very short timeline to, to develop. Uh, and if they don't make it, then we get the money and we get the rights back. That's kind of how we're structuring it. But, you know, the conversation right out of the, when they ask, Hey, Brandon, what do you have to ask of us? I say, well, I want to know what you're, you know, what you're going to do to get this book made into a, you know, film or a series project. And, um, because I don't want to do this with somebody that's just going to sit on it. Like you're going to, I, I want to see it made in, in a couple of years. So,
0: I mean, you should have them pay you more money if they don't make it. <laughs> Yeah. That would be a good, really way yeah. to to guarantee it because it sort of sounds yeah. a little structurally like an option. Like if they don't make it, you get the rights back.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, look, nothing in life is guaranteed. Right. So, but I feel like we can structure the financial incentives to, to make sure the project gets done. And and the the good news is, you know, it, it's a very unique piece of IP. Um, we own the IP. It's going to be a big book that, you know, Random House invested a lot in this book, so it's they're gonna they're gonna make it a big book. Um, it's got a lot of momentum going for it at a time when this these kind of projects are in high demand, um, and there's very few uh, that can be made uh, and are kind of like a perfect fit for this pandemic movie environment that they're dealing with right now, having to kind of limit the amount of people on set and in certain scenes. So
0: and and um. When's it going to come out the book?
1: Uh we just got our pub date. It will be August of next year. So okay. I'm happy about that.
0: Yeah, it's it, it is funny how long it takes though. Like I I recently delivered a finished book to my publisher uh, and it's March 23rd of next year. But yeah. it, it is what it is with publishers. And that's probably the right timing anyway. You get the election over with, get the inauguration over with and then have a book come out
1: yeah i mean god talk about your civil war comment um with this upcoming election it's going to be just i'm not looking forward to it but i would say though this is kind of my put my sniper my old sniper instructor hat on you know when i worked in the sniper course we we invested a lot of um curriculum development into positive psychology um and i see you know People get kind of a little bit down in the pandemic. There are a tremendous amount of opportunities right now. Um, I I sold a business in the pandemic. I was able to kind of shore up um, my media company. I started I started uh, TigerGummies.com, which launches next um, in September, not next month, September. I I hired, I promoted my my VP of marketing Alda to run that company because she's an amazing amazing, uh, woman and amazing marketer, like in, in kids, it's a vegan, all natural gummy. And then in that kind of health and wellness space, I was, again, I looked at the, the market study. I was like, there's, there's no real big, um, direct to consumer vitamin brand right now. You got Flintstone vitamins, all the big guys are in retail outlets and they're in these cheesy plastic bottles. We're doing all natural packaging, vegan gummies, like yeah, you know, everything about it is environmentally friendly. I'm like, that's I, I think that business is gonna take off. So I, I feel like these people are just kind of like twiddling their thumbs sitting at home, like there has never been a better time to kind of do something, you know, whatever it is that that you want to do.
0: I agree with you. You know, I was thinking about this the other day, and here's here's the the kind of economic model or the the entrepreneurial model, the way I think about it. So a lot of people look at the economy in a very one dimensional way, which is the economy's either up or down. And when it's down, everything's bad. And when it's up, everything's good. And you know, a lot of times the economy does work like that, but not, certainly not in a situation like this and, and whatever, then there's a kind of a two dimensional model, which is that the, the, which is kind of best explained by this saying, you know, at any given moment, some industry is in a bull market. So even when there's a recession, some industries might do very well. And you could argue like there's a, there's some two dimensionality in here. Like for instance, obviously the economy is in some sort of, you know, recession or, or it's damaged or it's, it's massively down or broken, but you know, we're on it. We're video conferencing. This probably video conferencing obviously isn't a huge bull market. A lot of tech is in a bull market. Gaming is in a bull market. I mean, Nvidia, which makes the big gaming chips, uh, they, self, they...
1: self storage too. I, I um, my son and I bought a self storage uh, facility in in north of Orlando,
0: and it's up, like it's up. Right, and so, but and then I'm thinking, but there's also sometimes when the economy is three dimensional. So, and what I mean by that is, the economy right now does not look at all like the prior economy, there's, there's no such thing as a new normal where we kind of go back to where it was, but things are just tweaked a little bit. Like what we had, every government in the world has airdropped trillions of dollars onto the economy. Those trillions of dollars have not really been spent, but they will be. And the industries that those trillions of dollars get spent on might be brand new. You know, like, for instance, you said there was no direct-to-consumer healthy vitamin brand. That's a new industry because people aren't going to store, you know, and it makes makes sense in this, in the way that the world has shifted, people aren't going to stores where they have to touch and deal with people. So direct-to-consumer is is becomes much bigger. Everybody's worried about health, of course, and safety. So it's just natural that here is a brand new industry that's going to develop. Uh, another one might be, um, and I have talked about this on some other podcasts, but another one might be setting up a compliance consulting company for either fortune 500 companies or schools. Are you coronavirus compliant based on yeah. health, the rules of the state, the rules of the government, uh, you know, what products do you need? Almost like, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this too. Almost like your crate box business. I can imagine sending, building a coronavirus compliance company crate box business for schools. Here's all the gloves. Here's all the masks. Yeah. Here's all the disinfectants. Here's the ultraviolet lights, S- you know, state by state, the rules are different. And, uh, uh, you know, this, the, I would say in there's like 50 to a hundred or a thousand new industries that are on the ride that are in ending zero right now. And yeah. a trillion dollars still has is still out there to be spent on them. And, and yeah, yeah it sucks to be, if you're la- if you're one of the one out of three people in the U.S. that have been laid off, it sucks. Uh, but there's still opportunity, uh, yeah. and that's what we're in right now.
1: And that's I mean, even Bezos talked about. Is um, I was um, we I ended up on a YPO call with with um, the guy, the founder of BlackRock, but he got to sit down and talk to Bezos, and he's like, "My job is to remove friction, you know, like identify friction." Um, sometimes friction is problems, right? And, and with COVID, it has introduced a ton of friction in our all of our lives, you know, with school, right? Like my, my friends in New York who have small children are like, okay, what's going to happen? This They know this preschool is not telling them whether they're not going to be virtual or in person because they want to get them to pay the tuition so they mm-hmm. can go, yeah, you're going to get some, you know, crappy two-hour Zoom call. They're like, no, we don't want to do that. So now they're like, What do we do? Do we just hire a Columbia student to teach our, you know, kids for two hours a day? So there's just all this friction out there, to your point, um, in the marketplace, because we are dealing with this, all this new stuff, and there's tons of opportunity. My point is, I I didn't want to brag by listing these kind of accomplishments, but I wanted to let people know, like, very grounded and name some of the accomplishments that I've done is because it's about your attitude. You know, you could have this kind of like down, Oh God, the virus, I'm stuck at home. I can't do anything for the summer. Cause even my friends are like, Oh, you, you can't bring your kids down to Puerto Rico. I'm like, why not? We, I can bring them down They They just have to wear a mask on the plane. Um, I found, you know, rather than, uh, you know, a summer camp I found a scuba shop that was willing to do private instruction. I got my kids all basic to advanced scuba certified we had a great summer together. So it's just more about, you know, just reminding yourself that like we're in charge of our, our own self and, you know, don't let the media and all this bad shit put you in a bad mood and in a mood that doesn't, you know, that closes down thinking around all the opportunities that are out there. That's, I guess that's what I'm trying to
0: say. I agree. But let me ask you one thing. Cause in general, I would say that has been my view. And, uh, you know, I started off in this in this lockdown very much playing a role of interpreting the data for, uh, I don't want to say the lay person because I'm also a lay person, but I just saw a lot of misinformation around the data. And so yeah. because of this podcast, I was able to have on scientists, epidemiologists, e- economists. So, So for those first three, four months, a lot of it for me was, providing a service of, hey, here's just a common sense way of viewing at all these different streams of data that are very much polarized and blah, blah, blah. And, but, but for the first time, and I, and look, we've all been through 9-11. We all, you know, I, I lived at ground zero. I, and then in the, in the recession of 2008, 2009, I was on CNBC all the time. I, I lived on wall street. I was optimistic through that whole time, but this time is maybe the first time in these 20 plus years where I see a, a path to disaster. Yeah. I've never seen a path to disaster before. Not even in the great recession. Everyone was saying, Oh, capitalism is over all the banks. You know, your ATM machine is not going to work. The system's going to run of money. No, it's not. Everyone needs to relax, but whatever. But this time there are some flavors of this. And again, small chance, but I just, I've never before seen an actual pathway that could lead to disaster.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. We, we had a Harvard professor, business school professor come speak to us um, a couple years ago. And he said, if we don't all like the leaders of the business community, don't kind of start thinking about how to make a better, make the world better, attack the income disparity in this country, we will be on a path of destruction. Um, like he laid it out very simply he's like America's not the greatest place anymore to live we don't have all this opportunity you know the, the land like america used to be about showing up with nothing and being able to, to have this massive opportunity the data says if if you're born into a rich family you have way more chance of and way more opportunity um, so america now like today the, or this was two years ago it was, the data set was very similar to south america and, and russia even that it really did matter what class you're born into. Um, now look, America's still a great country, but he gave this whole speech and I was like, like you mentioned, I'm watching the pandemic and, th- and thinking, wow, like the haves, like all the people with money got the hell out of New York, right? Like my friends are in the Hamptons, Connecticut, Florida, uh, California, the island somewhere. Um you know, and the and the poor are kind of screwed. And I was I briefed my team. I remember in in March I said, "Look, you guys just really have to make sure you're, you're you know you're taking care of your family, you're safe, you're healthy." But but I said, "Civil unrest is is likely coming. Like I don't know what it will look like, but just be extra cautious and careful because it, it's it's a boiling point." And I remember Aldo, my my VP of marketing, she when this all thing was blowing up. She's like, I thought you were being a little bit uh, alarmist, but she's like, God damn, like you, you called it. You know, <laughs> she was like, um, and I was like, you know, it's just uh, I've I've looked at this enough before to kind of see the sign, the little, little sign. So, you know, I, I to your point, I think it's a small chance, but you know, there's a lot of a lot of volatility in America right now and politics. Um, the, the income divide.
0: And you know, I'm not, I'm not so sure there's an easy solution because yeah. I think the words income divide are a lot more nuanced than people think. It's not just that Jeff Bezos has $150 billion and someone else makes minimum wage. It's that we've had generations of people going to ever increasingly expensive, um, higher education, uh, institutions to get a leg up on life and getting into greater and greater debt. And so the rich who go to these educational institutions don't get into the debt. They marry other people not in the debt. They have kids not in the debt. And everybody else is getting more yeah. and more in debt. And then the people who don't, who haven't been going to those colleges, they're also screwed. I mean, that's why college now is is even more in question than ever before. I mean, I've been yeah. pushing this for a long time, but it's even... I think it's a jet. It's a multi-generational thing, which got us here. And it's a, it's going to be yep. a multi-generational thing, which will get us out, but maybe there'll be some, some band-aids like, you know, some kind of, you know, it, whether, whether one agrees with them or not, uh, whether it's a, uh, a, a UBI or I don't, I don't like using the word reparations, but just some kind of like massive payment into the system. Um, yep. and, and maybe the U S can afford it because there's still so much demand for the dollar that, uh, people forget when we print up money, that increases the supply, but, but value is a function of supply and demand. And right now the demand is there from around the world for the U S dollar. So that's fortunate for us. So maybe there is enough demand that we can help people out directly. But, uh, and it's a, that's a very different thing economically than what would normally work as an economic policy. Uh, but yeah. we're in very strange times now too. Yeah. I'm not generally a
1: fan of UBI. Like I, I feel like some short-term relief in the pandemic was is good, but, I, I mean I like the simple model of of rebuilding American infrastructure bringing pharmaceutical industry back back on shore like identifying like a lot of these issues that we just didn't realize were a problem yeah. and now clearly are and and that that gives people purpose people I think generally want to work they want to Oh yeah they want to be productive so rather than just give them the the handout
0: I agree I agree I mean my my whole reasoning there is um, well, I have, a, I have a couple of reasons, but a, I think people just need to calm down and I hate to put it this way. I think we almost need to pay off people <laughs> to calm down. Yeah, and yeah. that, that does not, by the way, as an economic theory, that is horrible. That is the worst economic theory. You cannot run a society that way. Um, and I, I would not say as a philosophy of economics that, that it works, but I'm just thinking you you almost need a short-term band-aid to like give time to have the real solutions work. Because here's what will happen, and this is what's going to happen with the trillions of dollars in stimulus already. I, I don't know how active you are. If you, if you, do you play poker? I like poker, but I haven't played in a long time. So in poker, there's a, a saying, you always want to sit um, immediately to the left of the weakest yeah. player at the table. Because that person will bet, you raise, everyone drops out, and it's just you versus the weakest player. And so gradually all that, you know, they, there's another saying: money tends to go clockwise around the poker table. So the weakest player will, his chips will, will all, they will ultimately be your chips when you just blindly throw trillions of dollars in the economy. It's not going to solve a problem because it's going to end up in the hands of the smartest economic players. (laughs)
1: Like
0: if you just give money to people and they don't know what to do with the money, it's going to end up in the hands of people who do know what to do with the money. It's, it works exactly like poker, yeah. but.
1: And, and, like, a, and like a lottery ticket, right? Like a, a winner. Cause usually that winner is not financially savvy and, and the money, like that money's gone very quickly. Right. Like the they same, give it to them. Same reasons.
0: Yeah. Exact same reasons. So like, that's why I say it might just be like a, a payoff so that everything just calms down. And then like you say, you offer job guarantees, you have infrastructure projects Uh, And, you you, you know, and I think the problem with FDR's new deal, I think the intentions were okay, but it just wasn't enough money injected into the system to replace the money that had been lost in the system. And they never quite caught up until World War II when they started inflating things. It never quite caught up to all the money that had been lost in the system. And I think today's economists, or at least the Federal Reserve, understands a lot better how much money has been lost in the system during this time, so they're able to quickly replace it if need be. Yeah. But this, this—we're going off a more economic tangent, uh, yeah. and I think there's no real answer. But I think I think yeah. the common answers are probably not 100% correct anymore. It's probably yeah. some some nuances.
1: And I'd say added to that, and I, I've I've followed your a couple of your tweets, is and I agree with what you're saying about. Um, especially the latest one about the Washington Post, right? The environment that we're creating for ourselves is one where we cannot have civil debate and discourse. It's like, if you're not on this person, if you're not on Trump's side, um, we don't want to hear from you. If you're not, you know, a liberal, well, then everything Trump does is bad. It's just like, you, you can't express strong opinions in a respectful way and have a, have a civil debate. It's just, we're censoring like we're pressuring social media platforms to censor certain types of speech and, and not censor other types of speech. And people are afraid to like, they're afraid of their own shadows now on social media. And very few people are kind of speaking up or have the ability to speak up without risk. Right. Yeah. Because, because even my own agent called me and she's like, Brandon, please don't post anything political on, on social media. We just like, we're trying to get this book deal done and the movie like, just don't. I know you like to like drop these bombs sometimes. I'm like, all right, I'll just I'll stick to photos of the kids scuba diving and, and uh, we'll just play it safe, you know. So it, and that kind of sucks because I like to I like to throw it out there and just kind of nudge people and get a get a debate going on topics whether it's the economy, politics, all that stuff
0: yeah, no, I agree. it's it's even just even the tweets, and I'm I am so apolitical. It's ridiculous. Like I actually do not give a shit about any politics because I just sort of feel like you're either paying off one crime syndicate or you're paying off another crime syndicate. and and that's kind of underlined by the whole, I don't know, all these scandals like with Jeffrey Epstein. It's both parties. It's all it's every intellectual strata. It's it's every political and and economic strata. So you know you kind of just have to like take care of yourself, take care of your friends, take care of your family. You know, be a good person and work on ideas. And and fortunately, as you mentioned, there is a lot of opportunity now for new and creative ideas. Like I love how you're structuring things as experiments, and then the experiments that seem to work, you're doubling down on. And that's yeah. if everybody did that, we would certainly have no political problems right now. But of course not everyone's going to going to do that. Um, well, last thing you, you mentioned earlier, you, you sold the crate business. Uh, what, what was that like? So you had a business, basically people who were interested in Navy seals and military would get a box from you once a month with spy gla- binoculars and, you know, yep. batons to beat people up and whatever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I, you know, eight years ago, I started a one website called SoftRep.com, and and not essentially was news and military news foreign policy news and entertainment we did podcasts videos so now we have a small kind of we're streaming kind of news and entertainment but i i had this fan base that was into military content most of them are same type of similar demographic to ufc you know like high income earning males they they're fascinated with military content and they want to read about it and and listen and, and watch the videos and so I had seen the advertising industry getting disrupted and looking for other ways to monetize and, and said, okay, let's get into e-commerce. And we had a, a gear review website as a part of our company, and people were always asking us, what products do I buy? What's, what's a Navy SEAL knife look like? What's, because I'm, I'll tell you this, like enough, there's a few companies out there that said uh, the official watch or official knife, and it's usually bullshit. So these guys were coming to us like, what boots, what knives, what tent do I buy? And so we created the crate club and it was kind of this curated outdoor survival, you know, Navy seal in a box experience. And it blew up, like it was launched kind of in the sweet spot of the, the, the subscription box craze, right? Everybody wanted it. It was like, I want a freaking, you know, the dog box, the coffee box, whatever it was. And so it blew up and. And i'll be very honest it got too big too fast um i didn't hire well i have a soft spot in my heart for hiring veterans and and we ended i ended up making a really really bad hire and this guy almost put me out of business he hmm. he ended up getting uh, addicted to drugs and alcohol he was he was on the product side so he was spending money on purchase orders like a like a drunken sailor and and we ended up with $2 million in inventory that we didn't need or want. Um, And and so, and that business did not need to carry inventory. It was like Dell computer. You sell the box, whether it's a premium box for 1200 bucks a year, you know, the box is going to have so much value and you just put whatever the parts you want into it, but you you put the parts in and send it out, but you don't carry any inventory if you manage the process well. And um, I did not, manage it well and so i you know i went back to i was dealing with all these issues and and at the time i i um i just realized i uncovered this guy who i tried to save i gave him severance tried to put him into rehab and he ended up uh, dying of an overdose last year which, which oh sucked. my gosh i didn't know that yeah it sucks and,
0: and it's you know i think i i think i knew about this guy i didn't know i guess i hadn't talked to you about this since since uh, that happened
1: yeah yeah it's, yeah we never talked specifically about this and,
0: you know, business
1: isn't all, you know, what people see on s- social media. Right. So I'm like, Holy shit, I have all these problems. Like I got to put systems in place. And and so I went to this Harvard business school two-year program, which is tailored for owners. So it's, it's not a traditional MBA. Um, and you're with a hundred people of all over the world to have all these incredible businesses from a bauxite mine in Africa to uh, tele, communications conglomerate in brazil like just really cool people and and i so i came out of this program going okay i know now i got some tools and i gotta read this group of people i can lean on i need to make some changes so i was making those changes and the pandemic hit and i'm like holy shit My warehouse, my third-party logistics warehouse took me from net 30 to net 15 to cash on delivery to ship. Uh, Vendors were going out of business. Some vendors were were getting net 60 terms. And all of a sudden, hey, we can't give you net 60 terms. We need a 30% deposit. And I'm like looking at our cash flow going, there's no way I can sustain this. Like I'm I'm trying to dig out of this $2 million in inventory uh, issue, like AP buildup. And I had to call and renegotiate all this AP with either send it back or renegotiate it with a lot of vendors who were looking forward to getting paid, you know, a two hundred fifty thousand dollars in in sixty days, and now I'm saying it's going to be six months. And so, it was it was an extremely challenging environment. And I say, and I had talked to one of our largest competitors in the space, um, a company called Battlebox. They loved the Cray Club brand. They loved what we had built. And I went to those guys and I had a bank come in and try and help me. Fucking bank didn't get anything done. I got it done. You know, and of course, once I get the this thing process going, the bank's like knocking on the door. Hey, let's help you. And I'm like, no, get the hell out of the way. And so I sold, I sold the business that was and I got a good deal on it. It was a great deal for us. They took over your inventory they no, i i ended up doing uh mostly an owner finance deal for these guys but they took they basically solved all of our all the problems i was having overnight because they had their own warehouse they had a they were very good at delivering um value um delivering on the they eliminated the third-party logistics by shipping themselves so a lot of things and they were just generally good guys and they wanted to keep the brand and keep it and and so, um, they took over the business in May, um, and you know it was a it was a seven figure exit for me, and it was great. Like it was, and it took this weight off my shoulders, and then focus on okay, let me stabilize my media business, which is which is much smaller business, but very profitable, uh, recurring revenue because we have yeah. you know we have about um, today we have about ten thousand paid subscribers. By the end of the year, we'll be at over 20,000. Um, very, very good margin business. Uh, and it was able to make, let me take a bet on the Tiger Gummy business uh, and and uh, get that off the ground. Um, so, but anyway, that's the story. The Crate Club, it was, it, you know, it was the classic, as you see in a lot of companies that, that scale, you get, you have a lot of problems to solve. And if you don't solve them, shit starts breaking. So, <laughs> I was, yeah, I, I, but sometimes you don't recognize it, right? You. But I was at least able to go. Okay, I I know these symptoms, and I I, I can stop some of it, but I need to solve this quickly. And and so,
0: how did you find the company that um, that was the acquirer? You know what? Typically, what I
1: see happen is usually when you're in a when you're in an industry, and we were kind of like neck and neck. Usually, you know your top three you know, two, three competitors, yeah. you all know each other, you all respect each other and there's some type of dialogue going on. And and that's what I had. I had, it's a,
0: it's, a, it's an important lesson by the way, that, um, I don't know what you call it, like competition or, but like every time I've been in an industry, I always made sure I was friends with my competitors to the point where if I was in the same town as them, we can go out to dinner and then be cutthroat the next day. But, that was, you always want that because A, it's yeah. a source of information and B, it's th- situations like you're describing.
1: Yeah. And I, th- I think you see it a lot of, that it shows up, it shows up in a lot of areas, right? Even professional sports, like the people at the top of the sport respect each other. You know, typically there's a dialogue, um, you know, and companies compete and it's okay to compete, but usually those top competitors have a level of, of kind of respect for the for their top competition. And and so that's what I had. And I, to your point, I, I did exactly what you did. I, we had talks about the market, what's the challenges, what are they doing shipping? You know, how, how how do they feel about shipping themselves over the three PL, uh, which I had. And then, and then when, when, um, you know, I realized that I had these issues in the business, I was able to reach out to them right away and, and get a dialogue going and structure, a deal that was good for them and good for me. And and do it myself without an investment bank in the mix.
0: Yeah. Well, well, look, congratulations on that. Congratulations on your romance novels. Congratulations on the military thriller. I can't wait to see the movie. I can't wait to read the book. And I can't wait to talk about how you turned tiger gummies into a billion dollar business uh next time you're on or yeah. you know you'll be on either for the movie or the the tiger gummies or whatever the next experiment is that that you do let me know like you're not that far away from me now like i'm in key biscay you should fly your plane over here and just like hang out for a day
1: i, I will actually my girlfriend and i are taking the plane on a road trip essentially or i'm gonna fly it to missouri north dakota jackson Hole, yellowstone visit my dad in idaho down the coast of like Washington, Oregon, California. And then on the way back, I'm going to hit Florida. So I'll, I'll stop in and stay. I, I may ask to sleep on your couch, but.
0: <laughs> you don't have to sleep on the couch. I've got a room just for you. So okay. you're, you're welcome to stay any time. Cool. Uh, um, well, thanks a lot, Brandon. And, uh, don't forget send me, if you can find it, send me that, um, MBA book data yeah, I'll send you report. The
1: report. I'm going to send you still fear too. I'm going to send you the novel.
0: That would be great. Well, once again, Brandon, thank you so much. And uh, I will talk to you the next time.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure.